There we go. Hey, I want the band to, to come right up here with me just a second. David, bring your two, uh, two sticks, okay? Bring your two sticks with you and just walk right up here if you don't mind. Can you hold that? Can you get to be your props this morning? Yes. All right, Marcus. Hopefully you don't have a curate cup in there. You hold the, <laughs> you hold the sling? There you go. Um, and, and this is actually a bear uh, cover, so you just hold that up. It'll represent something. And uh, if you guys stand up, we're going to get a picture. To kind of squeeze in a little bit, let's get a picture, all right? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to turn, and we, I need somebody to come take the picture. Would, would anybody mind if you don't? We just, okay, come on up. Um, we just need a good photographer. And let's look at everybody in the back back here. Come up by the drums and take our picture so you can see everybody. Be careful. That's a tall step. Who's taking it? Oh, here we go. Uh, just turn around. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if you'll have to pan over it or not, but anyway. All right. Now, can you actually see the audience through us, or do we need to, like, kind of kneel down a little bit like this? Can you get tall? You see everybody? Oh, yeah, you could actually get on the stairs if you want to. I think they're uh, not fake. <laughs> Quiet on the set, right? Yeah, Pano. Oh, we're going to Pano. All right. <laughs> do y'all do that where you run to the other side and you're in both sides of the picture? <laughs> I actually did right. that in our Christmas picture. And on one side, I had angel wings. And the other side, I had a devil's hat on. And it was like, it was so funny. All right, thank you very much. All right. All right. Hey, David. Uh, hold those two sticks up. Everybody, this is David. Get it? David. David. And he's holding two sticks, and he's been killing those drums. So just remember that, because that's going to come into play today. Good job. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate y'all. That's fine. All right. Is everybody having a good time? It's awesome. Glad you're able to stay over on a Sunday. This is cool. I got to get all my props ready here. There we go. I might need my Bible though, because I'm going to teach right out of it. Y'all cool with that? Yeah. All right. There we go. So, how much does it cost, Jason? Where'd you go? How much does it cost to sponsor a kid at camp? Does anybody know? Did he say earlier? About seven fifty. Okay, um, here's what I want to do. I love this camp. I think this, this camp is amazing. Don't you just feel so like, safe's not the right word. It's, it's um, don't you feel so close to God, so open to God. God's everywhere we are, even down the hill. But we sometimes close off to him because we're distracted by life. But up here, it's easy to feel close to God, is it not? And, and I just love what goes on here with the camp in the summertime with all the kids and the young adults. We really need that. And so what I want to do is all the products that I brought with me, I want to uh, give the proceeds to help sponsor a kid. Now, I won't make that much. So if anybody wants to come in with me and partner with that, let me know. We'll go together and we'll sponsor a kid. All right? So get those products out there. I'm not doing this for glory. I'm doing this for God. Get those products. Let's sell that thing out. I don't have to carry them back on the plane. And it'll help some kid go to camp at Hume. Maybe that'll be the next Billy Graham or whomever or one of the great female Bible teachers that we have in, in the fellowships. So let's do that. All right? Let's get a kid to camp. This is just such an amazing place up here. This weekend, we have learned 
that giants did truly roam the earth. We've come up with a pretty solid theory as to their origin, when they lived, where they lived, how big they were, and who were the most famous among them. We learned how they were taken out by three pretty cool guys, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And all of them were actually in their 80s, pretty much, when it happened. Isn't that cool? And then we uh, were brought to a particular uh, giant, and his seed remained and resurfaced during the lifetime of the young shepherd boy named David. And David was a teenage shepherd overseeing his father's sheep, and he was the youngest of seven brothers. He's described in 1 Samuel 16, 12, that he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, ruddy, handsome appearance. And his story is quite fascinating. You can read about it in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel as well as in parts of the Chronicles. It is an epic adventure in every sense of the word. Some of David's great exploits included killing bears and lions that were trying to steal his father's sheep. And while he was most uh, uh, famous for going up against a particular giant, uh, that's the one we're going to focus on this morning more than the, the bears and the lions. What is that giant's name? Goliath, all right. Goliath is in the Valley of Elah, and he is challenging the Israelite army under the leadership of King Saul to send out their champion against him, and he does this for 40 days. Now, that's very typical in the day of armies, uh, and also you have to know that the Philistines with their chariots were not good warriors in the hills. They were on the, the seacoast plains, the level area, but the Israelites were hill warriors, and they would, they would fight in the hills, not down on the plains where the chariots couldn't get up there. So they have their hill, and the Philistines are kind of sitting on the opposite side of the valley on their side of that, uh, that big valley, and they're sending their champion out. And often when two armies would come together, whichever champion defeated the other ones, then it made the other army subservient to them, or that other army would then rout them because it was kind of a Braveheart saying, no, oh, we got it, boom, and off they go, and they annihilate the other army. And so this is a very typical thing, but it goes on 40 days. Isn't it interesting that this is the same um, nation that wandered 40 years? There's a lot of 40s. Jesus is in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights. I think that's pretty symbolic. No one wants to go out against this guy because he's only six foot nine. He's only three inches taller than the king, right? Oh, no, no, no. Because he's about 10 foot tall and he weighs about 750 pounds. And with this armor on, he weighs about 1,000 pounds. And he's got about a 10 and a half foot killing circle ratio with that big eight, eight and a half foot sword that weighed 26 pounds. Plus, he's got all the armor on. He is a war machine. And David's brothers are part of the Israelite army who are terrified of him. And they will not go up against him. The father, Jesse, sent for David out in the field near Bethlehem. And he said, I have some rations. I want you to deliver them to the Valley of Elah to your brothers. And so David takes those rations 29 miles from where he was at to the Valley of Elah. And when he got there, you could cut with a knife the fear that was just encompassing the valley. They were absolutely shaking in their sandals. They were scared to death of this context. There was a giant there. There was one of the Anakim, the Rephium, the, all those names that we looked at yesterday morning, legendary men of war, 
great men of renown. And this giant Goliath, who had been a warrior since his youth, had many, many accolades, and no one was able to come up against him. And there he was. Imagine the tales about this giant and his battles that had made it into the Israelite pop culture and were told around the fires. You know, later David would write a very famous psalm that we know as the 23rd Psalm. And again, if you have a DVD player, I have a few of those sets left back there. It's a 12-lesson series, and we'll send you study guides if you want to use them for your small groups. They're 28 minutes long, each lesson is. And we can get you those study guides. But when he wrote that beautiful psalm, he actually wrote it from the sheep's perspective. Often people think that he wrote it from the shepherd's perspective, but he didn't. It's the sheep talking to and about the shepherd. And in verse 4 of Psalm 23, the first part of that verse, here's what it says. Even when I go through the, what? Say it with me. Darkest valley. Do you have an idea that maybe David was reflecting on the valley of Elah? You're going, no, wait a minute. He wrote that when he was a shepherd boy. That's where we make a huge mistake. Almost the majority, if not all of the Psalms that David wrote, were written or written when he was an older man, or, or later after, I would say, after he was a teenager. So from his 20s up. Now, he probably wrote some as a youth. He had some time when he was out there. But a shepherd does stay pretty busy as well. And you'll see that in lessons one through four of that series, what the shepherd did. But I think most of this stuff, it was later. I know Psalm 23 was. He was an older man, an experienced person. He was thinking way back, decades before, to uh, an event that happened in a very, very dark valley where you could cut fear with a knife. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the dark, dark valley. He says, I fear no danger. Wow, it was a dangerous situation with that giant, that legendary death machine defying God's army. He says, I will fear no danger, for you are with me. If we're going to connect this verse to David and Goliath, then we need to look at the second part of Psalm 23, 4. And that's what I want to do this morning. The second part says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yesterday, we took a really in-depth look at the armor of Goliath. Today, we're going to take a really in-depth look at the weapons of David. Let's start with the first tool. It's the shepherd's staff. The staff is also known as a shepherd's crook. It's a long and sturdy stick, and it has a hook on one end. Some staffs have a point that are flared outward. The staff serves four main purposes to The main beam of the staff is used as a walking stick for a shepherd to keep his balance in uneven terrain. It's also used to part very thick undergrowth. The hook at the end of the staff is used to guide sheep that are struggling with the path. And the hook is used to help fallen sheep get back up to their feet. The staff is the most visible thing in the hands of the shepherd. It is not used by the shepherd to discipline the flock. Rather, it is a tool of support. It brings comfort to the flock. The sheep know that the one who holds the staff is the one who is in control, 
This is the person who is in the position of authority. Say the word with me, authority. It's interesting that a shepherd's staff shows up on the coffin of Pharaoh Tutankhamun of Egypt, also known as, uh, as King Tut. And you'll also notice that there is uh, not only a staff, but there is a flail, which is an agricultural tool, on the coffin. These are signs of Pharaonic authority. So the staff is all about what? Authority. Say it with me. The staff is all about authority. The staff is about authority. That's super important for you to remember. Now let's talk about the rod. This is the second tool in the hands of the shepherd. Some people believe that the staff and the rod are the same tool, but that is not the case. The rod is much shorter, it's thicker, it's a heavier piece of wood that's actually a defensive weapon. And the rod is used to defend the sheep against predators as well as thieves. The rod might be better known as a war club. The hardest of woods were used to build these clubs, and often uh, rocks or sharp objects would be incorporated into the tip, the big fat end, of the club. The Native Americans used such clubs, and they're made of extremely hard wood that include a root ball, and they're very lethal. They also added stones to the end of their clubs, thus creating what we call tomahawks. Later on, metal was used in tomahawks after the Spanish came to our continent, and these were used as daily tools as well as weapons in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, one of the most common ways to use a rod was to actually throw it, and this was practiced over and over until the shepherd could throw the rod with great speed and accuracy, and the velocity combined with the kinetic energy of the hard wood and the mass could kill or maim a predator. The shepherd also used the rod as a disciplinary tool. If a stray sheep got out of line and was causing a little bit of trouble, the shepherd would throw the rod with just enough velocity to get the attention of the sheep without harming the sheep. Sometimes the shepherd would throw the rod just to keep the sheep in line. So if the sheep is about to veer off the path into a bad area, maybe get stuck in a wallow in that wool with his heavy wool and not be able to get out, he would throw the rod right in front of the sheep hard hit the ground there, and scare the sheep back onto the correct path. So shepherds were very accurate in rod throwing. The rod was also used to examine and count the sheep. And this is referred to as passing under the rod. The shepherd would hold out his rod. The sheep would pass underneath. He would check each one to make sure there were no problems. And he used his rod to actually part the long wool on the sheep so that he could give it a close examination. He would look for blemishes. He would look for parasites, cuts. And if the wool is not parted, then the shepherd would never know the problem. Thus, it gave birth to a phrase that you've probably heard. One does not just pull the wool over his eyes. Have you ever heard that? That's where it came from. The passing under the rod signifies that the shepherd is the one in charge and has the, say it with me, authority over the flock. It also signifies that he is intimately in touch with his flock. He cares for them deeply and is the protector of the sheep. Now, we're familiar with several characters in the Bible that had rods. Do you remember Moses? Do you remember Aaron, Moses' brother? Moses lifted his rod and the Red Sea parted. If you watch uh, the movies on TV, I think the one with Charlton Heston, I believe, if I'm correct, he had a staff like this. 
and he's raising that staff. And they made the mistake in Hollywood, uh, if, it, if that was the case, that, uh, that, that he was holding up the shepherd's staff. But it would be the rod that he lifted up when the Red Sea parted by God's power. You also have the time that he held up a rod so the sun would stand still in battle, and they had to actually hold his arms. But as long as that rod, that symbol of what? Was up, then the power enacted. Aaron used his rod to perform a sign for Pharaoh when he threw the rod to the ground, and it became a what? Snake. And that rod was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. So in every case, the rod signified power and authority, just as in Ephesus or Ephesians 6, when we have the imagery of the Holy Spirit holding the powerful sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in the hand of the mighty shepherd. So, the rod symbolized power and protection. The staff symbolized what? Authority. So now let's, let's look at the rod and the staff together. It makes complete sense that a shepherd would not go into the field to care for his flock without having both the staff and the rod. Both hands full. All you've got to do is look at various cultures across the world and you'll see how they use their handmade tools. Now, I want to take a look at two examples from tribes with whom I have uh, shared life experiences. Sharpened on 
both ends like a spear end. They also carry a bow with arrows. These warriors and protectors of the tribes would not think about having a hand empty when it comes to protecting their own tribe. Now, with this thought in mind, I want us to go back to our text from Psalm 23, 4. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So it seems obvious that the writer of Psalm 23, that would be David, is referring to two different tools in this passage. And he's saying that the shepherd has his hands full. That's where it comes from. He has his hands full. Now, with that in mind, let's look at David's rod and staff and one more thing. <laughs> the sling. When David arrived at the valley of Elah, that dark, dark valley with the shadow of death, he witnessed one of the challenges made by Goliath and how afraid his brother army was. He heard some of the soldiers say that whoever kills Goliath is going to get a huge sum of money. They're going to become a millionaire. And they're going to get to marry the king's daughter. And they're going to have to never pay taxes again as long as they live. Would you like that? Yes, David volunteered to fight Goliath. So they brought him to King Saul. He takes a look at David. And he says in 1 Samuel 17, You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. He's been a warrior since he was a boy. Well, David's response to King Saul is very informative to our understanding of Psalm 23. And he says this in 1 Samuel 17. Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. Plural for both, by the way. This uncircumcised Philistine, whoa, whoa, time out. Let's connect the dot. Do you remember that passage, oh, later on in the prophets where it was talking about those fallen warriors, the sons of God? What did it call them? Uncircumcised warriors, fallen warriors. Do you see the connected dot here? Because guess who Goliath is from? He's from that seed line. Uncircumcised, fallen angel warrior spawn. That's what he's saying. You uncircumcised, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. He has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the mouth of the bear, or the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand. He goes, paw, paw, hand. Do you see it? I love the imagery of the Hebrews. Now, he's going to rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You probably already know the rest of the story. King Saul gave David his armor, and man, you know, King Saul is... He's so much taller than everybody. David couldn't wear that. Way too big for him. He's trying to walk around in it. He says, no, 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 this is not going to work. So he just goes out there with his shepherd's clothing on. And he walks out there to the, the little stream and he picks up some rocks. Now, they weren't quite this big, but they were probably about half this big. They weren't small like a little golf ball. They would have been about the size of a tennis ball, but they would have been smooth river stones like this. Nice throwing stones. And he put those five rocks in his shepherd's bag. Notice that. It doesn't say he put one in his sling and put four in the shepherd's bag. Let's read it. He took his staff in one hand. What in the world is he going to do with a staff going up against the giant? Why would he do that? That's, that's crazy. And, and in the other hand, he chose five smooth stones from the wadi. And what did he do, guys? Put them in his pouch. 
And then, and then he had his shepherd's bag, is what he called it. Then he, with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. It's not even a loaded gun yet. Now, it's possible that David may have had his rod with him as well. Because Goliath said this, Am I a dog that you come out against me with? Sticks. If it was just one stick and only a sling, he would say, with that stick. He says sticks. Remember David with his two sticks after he's been killing those drums? There you go. Two pieces of wood. One's a staff. One's a rod. He's also got the sling. You can easily carry a rod with a sling just like this. See how he's got it? Everybody had a little old, you know, pocket pistol, so to speak. It's easy. You don't even have to have concealed carry. You can just kind of hang it out. And, you know, it's not a big deal. See? Just like that. There it is. They were fast. They could load and sling within about two seconds. Now, do you remember the symbolism associated with the shepherd's staff and the war club that was probably in the other hand? The shepherd's staff represented what? Authority. And the war club represented power. And also to him, it represented protection. And so David was sending a message to Goliath. I guarantee you, it was a message Goliath had never heard or seen before. He's being basically told, you're a helpless, defenseless, stupid sheep. You uncircumcised spawn of Satan himself. That's what he was saying with his two sticks and his little sling. I love this, man. <laughs> it's just like, wow. And boy, I'm telling you what, it made Goliath so mad that he could not control himself. He began to run toward David. Now, there's some dude that came out with like a, it's almost like a TED Talk kind of thing that said that Goliath was in his geriatric years or that he was born with all these defects and that's why he was so big and all that. So he was a prop, okay? I do not give any credence to that whatsoever. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I've really looked into that, and there's just no background evidence. But when you look at the giants that we've studied, and that's why, listen to me now, that's why we did the detailed study, and we stopped along the journey to look at all of it to prove there was a race of giants that were powerful, demonic men. Okay? They were not geriatric, weird products of, you know, bad stuff <laughs> that were basically props. No, no, no. This was a war machine of a man. So for that particular theory that that gentleman puts out, uh, I believe the Hebrew word would be hogwash, all right? And if you want to go into the Greek, it would be baloney. So anyway, I don't go with that. I believe that this giant was amazing. He was a killing machine, and he's so mad now, he outruns his armor bearer, and he is going to kill this punk, this little pimple on legs. But David did not use his wooden tools to fight Goliath. They were the props. Do you see it? Instead, he used a sling. Check this out.
<laughs> it makes you cry every time I see it, man. What a gift. What a gift. So I want to use that gift to teach with, and that's what I do with our artifacts. This is in our little museum back in Nashville, and boy, we, it will sling. It will sling. I almost hit a car uh, with a uh, duct tape rock that uh, Jason made, and uh, I'm glad the guy didn't stop because he was kind of like, whoa, what was that? These slings are incredible. And you could become deadly with one of these slings. And the sling that David used was probably a little bigger. And it would fling a pretty good sized rock. And it could kill. And the rock that hit Goliath in the forehead was probably about the size of a tennis ball. And you can now understand why it either knocked him out and then David finished him off. Or it killed him and then David you know, finished him off. I do know this, that Goliath was running toward David so hard that when that rock hit him in the forehead, he didn't fall backwards. That's what you would assume. He fell on his face. He was coming at full speed. So for David to be able to hit him with one shot, loading quickly, and it snaps when you throw it, just like a 22. And then he snapped even harder when it hit that skull bone right there. Goliath fell on his face. Now let's stop for a minute and ask some questions. Where did David come from just before he arrived at the army encampment. He was in the field tending his father's sheep. What would he have had with him in the field? He would have had the staff, the rod, and he would have had his sling because it showed up with him. It was a very normal thing for them to have that, plus their shepherd's bag in which they carried rocks for their slings. What might might we infer from this? That when David was in the wilderness, he had these three things. Now let's go back and see what he says to King Saul in 1 Samuel 7. 
Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If I hadn't killed it with the rock, you see where I'm going with this? And it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur. He's got a war club. Finish it off. He didn't use the staff. Your lion or your servant has killed lions and bears, and this stinking, uncircumcised spawn of Satan himself is going to be like one of them because he's defied the living God. Now, do you see his armor? And he's wearing shepherd clothes. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that he used a sling to throw a rock at these lions and these bears, and he finished them off with war clubs. He didn't have a sword with him. Do you know the Bible mentions 700 left-handed Benjamite warriors that could sling a rock so accurately that they could split a hair? I think that's pretty amazing because most people back then were right-handed just like they are now. And so to mention 700 left-handers, this is like, wow, we got a special forces unit over here. So yeah, slings were used in battle. But I don't think Goliath with his big old helmet and all that stuff was too worried about a little sling and a little rock. Do you? Especially if he's running full speed and this little shepherd has got his little staff, you know. Man, I love how God works, don't you? It's pretty crazy. I've been in bear country before on many occasions, and bears can be very unpredictable. And I've always had to keep my, my guard up. And I've had to give my, my camps up. And on one occasion, I had to actually kill a bear in self-defense.
met in the sea. <laughs> okay, so I ran, but I quickly uh, remembered. Don't run. I've had to give my camp to bears and basically call the plane and say, come get us out. And on one occasion, I had to kill a bear and sell it to bears. He was going to get me. And all I had with me was a bow and arrow. I'll spare the, the shot so those of you who, who don't like hunting don't have to see it. All right, so I can tell you this. I would much rather have a bow and arrow, a pistol, or a rifle in my hand than this. Does that make sense? Because I've had lots of opportunities to be close to bears, and it's always kind of a scary, hair-raising thing. David goes up against this giant with a sling. He has amazing skills. He has amazing bravery. It's an amazing picture. Now you can understand why so many people in Israel loved the shepherd king. They adored him. He was the rock star of Israel, was he not? He could be pleasant and courteous and patient and humble and adorable. That's the songwriter side of David. And he wrote and performed more songs than anyone in Israelite history. And they're recorded in the book of Psalms in the Bible. That's the shepherd David with his staff gently overseeing and helping his flock through the valleys and the hills. But then there's the other side of David. There's the warrior king that was ruthless, blood-soaked, brave. He was passionately wild. He would go so far as to lay his life down for his sheep. You ever heard that one before? If the situation called for it, he would step up as a skilled warrior, a leader among leaders. He was the shepherd who went face to face with bears and lions and didn't back down, and he rescued the sheep from their mouths. He was a man's man. He was a protector of his flock. And that's why he wrote, from the sheep's perspective, Psalm 23, 4, those beautiful words, even when I go through the darkest valley, I do not fear danger. For you are with me. It is your rod. It is your staff that protect me. He's a sheep that feels safe in the good shepherd. And David portrays an amazing amount of courage and an amazing amount of confidence as he faces the giant in the valley of Elah. 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 40. And by the way, just think about this. When David walked up against him in that valley, he's going as a sheep, not a shepherd. As a sheep. Facing a sheep. Because he's going with the good shepherd. And he's holding the staff to show the authority of God over him. God the shepherd. Don't miss the imagery there. The Philistine came closer and closer to David. With the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was a young, healthy, handsome. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come out against me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beast. Oh, David's already been up against wild beasts, hasn't he? 
David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword. Yeah, it's a big one too, right? (laughs) Now you see how big it is after our study yesterday. You got that big massive spear that's over 30-something pounds. You got that javelin on your back. You're all in your Sherman tank, you know, loaded with your 50 cal. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him, and today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I will strike you down. I'll remove that ugly thing that looks like your neck threw up. I'm going to give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. He's throwing it right back in Goliath's face. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. Are we still talking about the story today? Halfway across the world? This whole assembly will know that it is not by the sword. It's not that by that big massive spear, you giant that the Lord saves because the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. That's when he was loading his sling. He's running. He's probably dropped his staff by now. He's running. He's grabbing that rock. He's loading that thing. He's slinging while he's running. He's good. (laughs) Wow. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David the Philistine, or defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. So evidently, he probably killed him with the rock. And then the sword that he borrowed just got him a trophy for his trophy room. David ran over him, grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath. And by the way, that guy that talks about, you know, Goliath being that weak dude, he thought that the armor bearer would have the sword and that he would be the one that that would really kill everybody for uh, Goliath. It, It says nothing about the armor bearer at this point. David didn't have to kill him to get the sword. He took the sword right out of the Goliath, either his hand or its sheath, probably his hand. And he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. Think what a scene it would be for a 15-year-old, normal-sized kid, pretty boy, picking up this massive eight-foot sword and going, and this big old head rolls. And the Israelites go, yeah, it was one of those Braveheart moments, you know, like, my goodness, what a scene. And he picked up the head. Yeah. Now, let me ask you something. How many of you guys believe right now that you could reach down and pick up a 50 pound bag of dog food with one hand and lift it over your head? Does anybody in here think you could do that? How many of you think you could? Some of you could. No kidding. Don't. It's okay to brag. There's a few of you that could. The the little guys back there, no, sorry. Ain't going to have it. That's a heavy thing, man. 50 pounds, when you lift it straight up like that, some of us, they're older, have the bad shoulders. There's no way we're doing it. Goliath's head weighed about 51 pounds. What's the aftermath? 
The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry. They chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley, to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sherayim road to Gath and to Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and he brought it to Jerusalem. That was a long trek. Man, that's over 30 miles. He's carrying his 51-pound head. Goodness gracious, probably had a cart or something to put it on, or maybe he put it on his backpack, you know, whatever. He takes it to Jerusalem. He puts Goliath's weapons in his own tent. Had to be at least an eight-and-a-half-foot tent, didn't it? 1 Samuel 18, David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people, and Saul's servants as well. He's a teenager. He's now in charge of the, war, of the army. That's crazy. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet Saul. They were singing and dancing with tambourines, yoo, 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 all the stuff they do, shouts of joy, three-stringed instruments. They danced, and they sang a song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Uh-oh. Somebody's not going to like that. Saul was furious. He resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. And you know the story, and we won't get into that part of it. It's fascinating. Go home and read it. He began to chase David and try to kill him. Yet David, killed, David treated the king with great respect. David later became king. He was an amazing warrior. He was a man after God's own heart. He did a lot of bad things, but God loved him. He loved God with everything he had. And all of a sudden, they found out that some more giants had survived. I've had a number of you come up and, and talk uh, over the weekend about all these giants. And several of you said, are you going to talk about David's four brothers? I mean, uh, Goliath's four brothers? We're going to talk about the last four brothers for just a second because they wanted to defend their relative. And they came against him, 2 Samuel 21. I'm going to read it. Now listen close. Then Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giant, whose bronze spear weighed about eight pounds and who wore new armor, intended to kill David. Now this is decades after Goliath. But Abishai, son of Zariah, came to his aid, struck the Philistine, and killed him. Then David's men, he had these mighty men around him, swore to him, you must never again go out to do battle with us. You must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. That might have a play in one of David's later decisions because they said, you are so important, we cannot afford to lose you. Now, wait a minute, where's the faith of the men at? Uh-oh, we're starting to see a problem, aren't we? When someone gets so big physically, so to speak, in their legend, in their accomplishments, in their success, that even others around them didn't hold them up like a Hollywood movie star. We got to protect them like the president. We got to do whatever. We can't let harm come to him because if harm comes to him, our country will fall. Now who are we putting our faith in? I think we've seen that recently with one of our politicians. Think about it. And it has caused a lot of problems. I don't really mean to get into politics. I spoke at the NRA a week ago Sunday, and I went right after that gentleman. And I'm not going to say 
what I think about anything related to politics because this is not about politics. I'm just simply saying when we start putting our faith in a man over God, we have got problems, all right? And that's what's going on here. And David began to believe that. After this, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibachai the Hushite, or Hushathite killed Seth, who was one of the descendants of the giant. Once again, there was a battle with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, son of Gerar Orgum, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath of Gath. Oh, well, the Bible's wrong. There's two Goliaths of Gath. The shaft of his spear was like a, a weaver's beam. At Gath, there was yet another battle, and a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet, 24 in all, he too was descended from the giant. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of David's brother, who knew what his uncle had done when he was a youth, was like, I got a brave uncle. I'm part of that family. I got that seed line in me. Woo, I'm going to do it. And he goes and kills that giant. These four were descended from the giant in Gath and were killed by David and his soldiers. They were not Goliath's brothers. I don't know where we get that. They were his sons. I mean, think about it. It's been decades since he killed Goliath. It's the perfect timing. That's my theory. We'll move on. So David gets rid of all the giants. They're finally annihilated. Satan's attempt to ruin the seed line of David is now over. Oh, can't you just see, can't you see Satan? When, when that young puppy David goes out there with a sling and with a couple of sticks against that giant, that Sherman tank, he's like, oh yeah, I got him in the garden. I got him to lose that. And boy, I got the, the, my, my, my demons to get in there and marry those women, you know. And, I, I'm, and I'm, I almost got it all messed up. I got God to kill everybody with the flood, you know, and all this stuff. And I've still got one of them remaining, and I know it's going to work now. We're going to get the seed line done. And it didn't happen. Satan did not like that one bit. Did you know that there was yet one more giant that was going to raise up, and this time David would not win? We just don't talk about that, do we? We like to talk about him at the age of 15, killing Goliath. But in the years when he should have known better, and he was much more experienced and much more in love with God, he lost. 1 Chronicles 21, 1 through 7 the biggest giant of all, Satan, rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count Israel from Beersheba to Dan. Bring a report to me so I can know their number. And Joab replied, may the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, aren't they all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Yet the king's orders prevailed over Joab. And so Joab left and traveled throughout Israel and returned to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the troop, total troop registration to David. And in all of Israel, there were 1,100,000 armed men. And in Judah itself, 470,000 armed men. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the count because the king's command was detestable to him. And this command was also evil in God's sight. So he afflicted Israel. You go, well, what's wrong with numbering the people? The problem with numbering the people is the same problem that we all face. It's called pride. I've become such a great king, and I have such a great nation, and I have such a great army. Look at me. 
He was listening to his buddies, his own bodyguard. You're too invaluable to lose. We'll sink as a nation if you're not in the lead. He listened to them. And guess what? He didn't go out to war in the spring when kings go out to war. And what did that get him? Big time trouble. Because he can have whatever he wants. He's king. And he sees that beautiful woman taking a bath. Sheba in the bath. Bathsheba. And boy, does he want her. And he gets what he wants. And he had sex with her and he got her pregnant. Now he's got a problem because she's married to one of his mighty 30 men, Uriah the Hittite. And you know the story. And he ends up having him murdered because it just wouldn't work out. Once you commit a sin and you try to cover it up, oh, it's just so much harder to cover it up. And it gets worse and worse. And you got to tell another lie and another lie and do another deceiving thing. And finally, it's all going to come out. And it did. And as a result, the child died. Uriah died. Bathsheba became a widow. Ended up marrying the king. And even though it was a terrible thing, and it was a great loss of a battle to Satan, at least one good thing came out of it. And sometimes that happens, doesn't it? And Solomon was born. And he became a great king. But what we don't often read is what happened to the nation. When David said, I've sinned greatly because I've done this, Please take away your servant's guilt. I've been very foolish. The Lord said, all right. Tell David he's got three choices. Three years of famine, three months of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord. It's going to be a plague on the land. The angel of the Lord, unleash the death angel. That's one area in heaven I don't want to have my condo next to the kraken. You know what I'm saying? Wherever they keep him. Unleash the death angel. Send him down. The Lord is going to bring destruction on the whole ter territory of Israel. And David said, you know what? I'm in anguish. Please let me fall into the Lord's hands, not in my enemy's hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 Israelite men died. Then God sent an angel to Jerusalem. There's the death angel. To destroy Jerusalem. But when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked, relented concerning the destruction, and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand now. The angel of the Lord was standing at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And when David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, with his drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over the holy city of Jerusalem, David and the elders who were covered in sackcloth fell face down. Can you imagine seeing that? It was not like walking up against a 10-foot giant in armor with an 8-foot sword. We're talking about the death angel, the angel of God. They fell to the ground. And David said, wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? I'm the one who sinned and acted very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me, against my father's family. That's the seed line. But don't let the plague be against your people. And God stopped the plague. When David allowed his pride to tell him, that he was really important. That he was so necessary for the nation to make it. This is what happened. 
Guys, we've got to stay humble. Some of you have done amazing things. Some of you have founded companies. Some of you have a whole lot of money. You've made it. Feel smart, don't you? You got that big old house and that really nice car. Some of you have done great mission work. You had great accomplishments on, on, on the field of, of, you know, in mission work, and you've seen miracles and, and all of that. And some of you are great athletes, and you've got trophies, and some of you have just done these incredible things, you know, and people say good things about you, and you write the best thing, but, oh, you got a TV show, whatever it is. And when we start reading our own press and we start going, eh, I'm pretty good. Man, I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't matter how many giants we have slayed, how many addictions we have overcome. I got this. We are most vulnerable at that moment to be slayed by the giant of pride. Pride comes before a fall. Please, please, please stay humble. And I want you to understand. I can get the band to come up, please. I want you to understand that the power that is at work in you is greater than the power that is at work in the world. But it is not your own power. It is the power of God living in and through you. Satan thought that he was going to have the seed line done. And he kept sending those giants. But when they were all gone, he was struggling. And the next big time that we see him is when he's testing Jesus in the wilderness for how many days? 40 days and 40 nights. He's, is this really the Messiah? He thinks it probably is, so he's keeping an eye on him. But he knows by the time he gets him in the garden that night, this is him. And I love how Jim Caviezel plays it in The Passion of the Christ in the garden scene. It's amazing. When Jim stomps on that, it was Jesus doing it, on the head of that serpent. But the next day, Satan was convinced that he finally was going to get his task accomplished and keep Jesus from fulfilling his mission. And he had him on the cross, and Jesus is about to die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Satan is having his way, and he's having his day, and the giant gloats more than any giant has ever gloated in the history of the world, including that first one that we studied named Nimrod, including Goliath, including his sons and all of the race of the Anakim. Satan gloats and throws darkness into the world for three hours in the afternoon. And he waves this victory flag. And in his booming voice, he's like, we got him. We finally won. And what he didn't know is that God himself, with a piece of wood, <laughs> you going with me? on a piece of wood. Maybe not holding a sling, but there's a rock involved. God knew that in just a matter of time, that rock that was convincing Satan that he had killed the Messiah would roll away to reveal that he hadn't. And the great deceiver was outdeceived by God himself. The plan came to fulfillment over all the millenniums. And it was the seed line that came through the chosen house of David, through the blood of Christ, 
that was poured out for you. And God says to you, you're facing these giants and you've been conquered by some of them. And you're laying on the battlefield in blood and you're dead, but I'm going to bring life back to you because I am the giver of life. I am the one who kicked Satan in the teeth. Oh, death, where is your sting now? 1 Corinthians 15. I am the one who brings life back into death. I offer it you through the blood of my son. And Jesus Christ, the wonderful, beautiful sacrifice of the Lamb of God, offers you his blood and says, I will cleanse every sin you've ever committed. And I will give you the power of my Holy Spirit that will enable you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And guess what? I will be with you because you're my sheep and my rod and my staff will give you comfort. You will walk in a what? Authority. Say it with me. You will walk in authority as you face the giants of the world and especially the giant who's still roaming the earth trying to kill you and destroy your family and destroy your church, and destroy your country. And he's having his way. And it's time for us to understand that when we walk off this mountain and get in our cars, drive off this mountain, and we get back out of those cars, and we start living our life down off this hill, that we're going to be facing some giants, and we're going to walk out with a staff and with a rod and with a sling and some rocks, and we're going to know as sheep that the shepherd is with us, and there's not a giant anywhere, including Satan himself or any of his demons. And yes, they're very much alive, and some of them are in the form of humans probably. There's nothing that we're going to face that we cannot defeat if we continue to walk in the power of God and the blood of the Holy Son, right? Now, I want you to understand that. I want you to know that that is how powerful you can be. Yes, you can repeat what David did with Goliath. Yes, no matter what the giant is in your life. Last night as I was hanging around with some guys at the fire out here, I listened as they talked about what the giants were in their lives. Everything from cell phones to lust to busyness, many other things. And you've got your giants. But I'm going to tell you, in the power of God, you can defeat them. If you're not a Christian, you need to accept the blood of Christ. If you're walking in the world, even though you've accepted Christ, you need to repent. Because you want to walk in power, not quenching the Spirit, not grieving the Spirit, but walking in holiness, driven by the Spirit, open to the Spirit. I'm going to challenge you to do something for 40 days. Remember the 40? Start today. Mark it on your calendar. And I want you to do an experiment. Every day when you get out of your bed, I want you to get on your knees. And I want you to say the Acts prayer. Adoration. You adore God. Tell him how great he is. Not because he needs to hear it, because you need to say it. Secondly, you confess your sins to him because you do have some. Confess your needs. Third, thank him. Thank him for whatever you want to thank him for, but especially for him saving you. And then S is supplication. That's when you pray for stuff and others. And only then, in that order. And then I want you to end your prayer like this. You are the lion of Judah. And as scary as it is to walk with a lion, I know that you do not hate me, you love me. I know you're not going to let harm happen to me as long as I will hold on to your mane. Lord, give me the... The bravery to grab the mane of the lion 
and walk with you daily. And I don't have to discern where we're going because you already know. I just got to have enough faith to keep hold of your mane and not listen to the fake wannabe lion who's trying to get me down his trail. Now, with the other hand, you're going to reach down and you're going to grab a hold of the wool of the Lamb of God. Lord, you are the Lion of Judah. You are powerful and you protect me and you're leading me in authority. And you're the Lamb of God. Grab that wool. See it in your mind. And you died for me. And your blood cleanses me and makes me clean and new. And I would sure be stupid if I let go of the lion and the lamb and strayed from the path. Give me enough sense to just hang on and let you take me where you want to go. You pray that prayer for the next 40 days and see what happens in your life. And for right now, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I want to know this. If, if there is a man or a boy in this audience that has not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and sacrificial lamb and one who empowers and is the good shepherd, I want you to come down here, all right? I want you to just come down here right here on the front so we can know that you want to become a child of God. Now, don't do it if you don't want to. But it's the greatest offer ever given. Please don't go off this mountain without accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. And guess what? There's water if you want to be baptized. We've done it. It's cold. And if you need to repent because you're not walking in the power that you see now you need to walk in and you're facing some giants. Or if you're facing something and you're trying to walk in power, but it's scary and you just need some guys to pray over you, come over on this side right here, okay? But stand right now. Let's worship the Lord God. Let's respond to his word, his message, all right? And let's get our lives right with him.